Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anthony Cow. My guest today is Aram Hur. Aram is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Missouri's Truman School of Government and Public Affairs. She also serves as co-director of the MU Institute of Korean Studies. Her research focuses on national politics and democracy, especially regarding issues of identity change, integration, and democratic support in East Asia. All these issues come up in Aram's book, Narratives of Civic Duty. How National Stories Shape Democracy in Asia, published November 2022 by Cornell University Press. Using both qualitative and quantitative findings, primarily from South Korea and Taiwan, the book argues how, under certain circumstances, nationalism can actually enhance civic duty and therefore democratic engagement. Thank you, Aram Her, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, first off, as someone else who spends a lot of time thinking about the national narratives of Taiwan and South Korea, I was really excited to pick up your book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what motivated you to explore the issues within narratives of civic duty? Sure. So I grew up moving back and forth uh, between South Korea and the United States. And we probably all have sort of a, a critical juncture, political memories, sort of the first significant um, political uh, event that we witnessed. And, and, you know, for me, the one that really um, stuck in my mind growing up was, was the 97 Asian financial crisis. And in response, you know, there was a sort of huge nationwide uh, gold drive movement in South Korea where an estimated one in four households participated. And these were, you know, this was essentially a donation drive. And I watched, you know, on television as, you know, people lined up. This was like in the middle of January. So it's 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 really cold in South Korea, um, you know, willing to donate things like wedding rings and, and family jewelry and, and stuff like that, uh, you know, for the sake of this sort of flailing, very young democracy at the time. And as I watched this, you know, I, I began to really um, get interested in, you know, what what could possibly motivate that kind of citizen sacrifice uh, for one's country, um, and it, it got me you know, thinking about democratic citizenship not just as a kind of legal status, but as a form of identity, um, a very powerful group identity that could be the source of political belonging, but also very powerful political loyalty. So that kind of all kicked off my interests and in, in notions about, you know, nation, belonging, and then duty. And how would you summarize the main thesis of uh, narratives of civic duty for folks who haven't yet read it? Um, what are you trying to argue and what aren't you trying to argue? So the key argument is that civic duty, this, you know, very good thing that all democracies want and need and, and is really being seen as kind of the last bastion against democratic backsliding nowadays, that, that, that this thing is actually rooted in the very thing that's seen largely today to be harmful to democracies, which is strong national attachments. 
And it's true that nationalism gets a bad rap. Um, so recently it's been linked to you know, xenophobia, exclusionary attitudes, extremist parties. But there's this loud and very flashy side of nationalism that often over, overshadows what I would argue is a much quieter, deeper side where nationalism can instill an intrinsic sense of civic duty to contribute and sacrifice for one's democracy. And, you know, traditionally people have thought of civic duty as something that has to do with the culture or character of a particular society. And what the book argues is that the democratic benefits of nationalism have less to do with what that nation is made of, whether it's ethnic or civic or Confucian or Christian based, uh, and more to do with the relational legacies that it embeds between the national people and the state that they call home. And this really puts the focus on this idea about national stories, which I argue sort of this kind of the folklore of the national people. So these stories exist below the level of constitutive myths, but above the level of personal anecdotes. And they're nearly idiomized, almost parable-like stories about what happened to the national people, the triumphs, failures, and most importantly, you know, who stood with us versus who betrayed us in our times of need. And so they are fundamentally relationship stories that embed lessons learned about who to trust and to whom we owe our loyalty as members of you know, this particular nation. And so they come to define a nation's moral relationships. And so to understand you know, why nationalism sometimes barks and bites and other times you know, runs loyally alongside the democracies that house it, the argument is that we need to pay more attention to the stories that underlie uh, national identity and outline a nation's history of relationships with other nations, but also with the state in which it lives. Mm. I do want to get to the stories in a moment, but first, uh, you know, as we mentioned up front, much of your analysis in the book comes from this comparative study of South Korea and Taiwan. I feel you probably hint at this a little bit in your uh, first um, response, but tell us why you picked those two countries for the study. So South Korea and Taiwan make a great comparison from an inference perspective for this particular question. So they have, um, they're actually really similar on a lot of big macro level variables, like both were Japanese colonial, um, both lived through Japanese colonialism, uh, you know, experienced military authoritarianism right after independence, and then eventually democratized, uh, both from bottom up pressures, and then rapid economic development through the 1980s. Uh, both are also largely racially homogenous and are in sort of similar geopolitical situations with autocratic brother-sister regimes um, as neighbors. And so they're actually quite comparable in terms of many of the big alternative explanations for things like civic duty, like colonial legacy or, you know, experience of the developmental state, that those kinds of things. And yet, as we'll get to in a little bit, um, you know, nationalism's relationship to the state and the kinds of stories that that these uh, relationships produced are quite divergent uh, in the two cases. So that's from a very like, uh, you know, comparative politics inference perspective. But there's also a second region, which is that both democracies are from a region of the world that has long suffered from a lot of pessimism about its democratic potential due to having, you know, a Confucian collectivist culture, due to having strong ethnic flavors of nationalisms. And yet, you know, they've really defied all of those uh, predictions about 
about weak potential for democracy. And so there was something else there. And, and I really wanted to, to explicate that. Well, getting to the stories then, uh, how might you describe South Korea's national story? And uh, tell us about how you tested out the effects of that national story uh, upon civic duty and democracy. So Korea's national stories have historically, you know, painted a very strong, almost symbiotic relationship between the national people and the state. And this really goes back to the racialization of Korean national identity as a kind of survival response to Japanese colonialism. Um, So, you know, speak to any Korean today and they would tell you that, of course, it feels natural that Korean being Korean is, is primarily rooted in the bloodline. But this wasn't always the case. I mean, before Japan's rise, Um, Korea was trying to make, you know, cultural connections to China, for instance. Um, But once colonialism hit, right, the sort of national entrepreneurs need to find a way, you know, how do we how do we preserve our nationhood um, even when we have lost political autonomy? And and the way that they did that was to actually kind of rebrand and reframe Korean identity as something that was rooted in a shared and singular bloodline, such that it was essentially divorced from political authority. And this, uh, in Korean, we say tanil minjo, but this sort of idea of one bloodline became the dominant kind of meta frame uh, that that framed the independence movement that, you know, through independence, really linked the new Korean state and the people as if it were one whole body. And, you know, this isn't to kind of sugarcoat all the divisions that happened afterwards. So post-independence, rival factions competed, you know, bitterly over the direction of the new nation and both sides uh, claimed to be the true representative of the entirety of the Korean people. And so, you know, although the peninsula, as we know, was eventually split into basically de facto two separate states from this conflict, Within each state of North and South Korea, this this belief of very strong nation state linkage that this state represents nobody else aside from, you know, the best interests of our national people still remains intact. Now, within South Korea, it gets a little bit complicated. Um, So so after the after the partition. Um, the Park Chung-hee regime continued to actively seed these kinds of national stories that continue to paint nation state as sort of a singular body or an extended family, um, you know, actively using kind of that bloodline metaphor through government programs like the Semal movement, uh, the mass uh, public health immunization campaigns of, you know, citizens should take care of the national body, um, as well as mandatory military service. And, you know, when, when the state repression got to the point where these beliefs started to falter, right, that, that this state really holds the best interests of the national people, when that started to weaken, the anti-regime and pro-democracy activists again framed their demands for democracy, not as an overhaul of that national narrative, but actually as a restoration of that original narrative to its purest form, that by reforming and opening up the state that we could really truly call that state as the true representative of the entire national people. And it's it's really just 10 years after that, that we get hit with the Asian financial crisis and see that outpouring of civic duty, um, you know, all in the name of, of nation. So 
you know, how do these things kind of manifest? What do these national stories actually look like? Um, so in South Korea, I first began by examining these national stories in over 150 personal narrative essays that were written by overseas Koreans who, uh, you know, have, have sort of a legal out to not uh, serve in the military, um, but decided to return and fulfill the military service obligation anyway. Um, so they wrote in these essays, you know, sort of their life story and, and, you know, how they came to this decision. And you can really see from analyzing these these personal essays, um, these kinds of national idioms that start to emerge over and over again. So, for example, you know, you're not a real Korean man until you serve in the military or it's a natural duty like my father and grandfather before me for me to serve in the military um, or, you know, it's what a Korean with Korean blood running through his veins should do. So you see these, these metaphors really come out and, you know, these, these idioms are coming, you know, they're not learning this. They're overseas Koreans, right? Most of them grew up not in Korea. They're not learning this in school, Um, but they're learning it from national stories that are shared from grandfather to father to son that essentially links being a good Korean with these kinds of state supportive actions like serving in the military. Um, so then I run a, a turnout field experiment to see, you know, how powerful is that national pool in a real life setting? Um, so in a pilot mobile election that was run by South Korea's National Election Commission, I find that, you know, simply making a nationalist appeal to vote uh, boosts the sense of civic duty in the treatment group by 13 percentage points and actual turnout by six percentage points which still, you know, still remains one of the largest turnout effects in this literature. And then finally, I trace the national effects across, you know, three different forms of civic duty, civic duty to vote, to pay taxes, to defend the country. These are, you know, forms of civic duty that all democracies share and need. And using a national representative survey of South Korean citizens, I find robust evidence of a, of a consistent and very powerful pull um, from national identification in terms of motivating this kind of civic duty. Let's talk about the Taiwan side of the comparison now. Uh, How does national identity differ in Taiwan from South Korea? And how does that then create a varied landscape in terms of civic duty and democratic engagement? Yeah. So, you know, one of the first questions I get whenever I tell the Korea story is, is skeptics will say, well, isn't that just because it's it's ethnic nationalism, right? High degree of collectivity, um, you know, identity homogeneity, uh, these kinds of things generate um, this kind of social cohesion that you're, that you're looking at. And so, you know, Taiwan is this just amazing comparison to that, where um, originally Taiwanese nationalism started out with a very ethnic flavor as well. So it's, you know, it's the same kind of ethnic flavored nationalism. Um, but as I'll say, you know, kind of to start with the punchline, uh, Taiwan's national stories are, are very fragmented and largely oppositional in nature against the state and therefore provide a much weaker identity foundation for civic duty. And this doesn't mean that levels of civic duty are, are lower, because um, in fact, if you look at survey data, levels of civic duty between Taiwan and South Korea are actually quite similar. Uh, but it's that it that civic duty rests on much more tenuous identity connections to the state. Um, that means that that kind of civic duty is much more vulnerable 
um, to to crisis contexts and and will you know more easily fall apart uh, when the pressure is high. Now to understand why that is, you know, we again I think need to kind of go back in history. Um, paying attention to the kinds of national stories that were produced at, at the different critical junctures of, of Taiwan. So I think, you know, the story begins um, when the KMT loses, the Chinese Civil War uh, retreats to the island uh, with the full intent of retaking the mainland. And in order to do so, it launches a really aggressive re effort onto the islanders, you know, banning local culture, dialect, history that had evolved kind of separately from mainland China due to generations of physical distance and separation from the mainland. Now, these efforts were often very selective and brutal. And so, you know, the 228 incident really uh, was the culmination, um, I think, of this kind of uh, oppression. And, you know, KMT efforts ultimately backfire. So instead of eliminating islander identity, this kind of state repression actually stirred the beginnings of a distinctly Taiwanese form of nationalism forged in the exact counter image of the KMT's vision at the time, which is Taiwan as, you know, part of the greater Chinese nation. Now, democratization could have been this critical juncture for rewriting the national identity of the state, but Taiwan was actually a case of what political scientists Joe Wong and Dan Slater call democratization from a position of strength. So the KMT actually maintained political dominance after democratization. And so what this meant was that Taiwanese national stories continue to center on experiences of political exclusion, social bias, uh, you know, continuing to paint the linkage between the Taiwanese nation and the state as something that is antagonistic. And so, you know, for the majority of citizens today who identify as pro-Taiwan, the national stories continue to frame what they still see as a largely and heavy KMT legacy state, whose official name is still Republic of China, as an object of, of doubt rather than duty. So, you know, how does this manifest? Um, I conducted kind of like a parallel analysis to the South Korean case. So in over 40 personal narrative interviews that I conducted with college recruits for Taiwan's all-volunteer force, so this is the professional military that the government is trying to transition to uh, from its conscription model. So I find that, you know, Taiwanese national stories equate being a good Taiwanese with actually a counter state script. So citizen behaviors that actually doubt or disengage or even actively oppose the state because my nation, my Taiwanese nation is seen as something that's actually uh, needs to be protected from, not by the state. And so, you know, my subjects here describe serving in AVS, AVF as something that is contrary to my identity or contrary to my family's legacy. Um, and, you know, but I want to be very clear here uh, not to confuse two things. So this is not to say that Taiwanese youth don't feel duty to their nation. I mean, they feel tremendous duty to defend the Taiwanese nation and repeatedly say in surveys that they are willing to fight if there is an attack from China. It's just that this very deep duty to the nation doesn't translate into a civic duty to the state's military, which causes obvious issues, I think, for, for, for the Taiwanese government. 
Um, I also find that in a uh, survey experiment context, um, that national appeals do nothing to increase a sense of civic duty among self-identified Taiwanese to contribute to government efforts for earthquake prevention and relief. Um, and also uh, have little to no pull toward civic duty to vote or pay taxes uh, in representative surveys. So, you know, the difference here is is really uh, paints a stark contrast to what we see in South Korea. Well, moving away from South Korea and Taiwan, you actually then bring in Germany as this sort of generalizing anchor to this thesis around national identity and civic duty. Tell us some more about why Germany is a good comparison and what we can learn from that comparison between Germany and the Taiwanese and Korean examples. Sure. So, you know, some might inevitably ask at this point, well, is this somehow like a specific story to new emerging democracies in East Asia? And so I wanted to I wanted to really address those concerns. And so Germany, right, halfway across the world, entirely different culture, um, uh, different kind of political history is really this this um, test to see if we observe parallel dynamics in a um, very different macro context. And what's actually fascinating about Germany is that it essentially embodies both uh, the kind of Korea and Taiwan, like the representative cases of national stories that those countries represent um, under one roof. So Germany, both East and West, are obviously comprised primarily of ethnic Germans. Uh, But during Germany's partition after World War II, very different notions of of nationhood and linkages to very different kinds of states took root across this ethnically homogenous group. So, you know, as we know, West Germany became a democracy um, and espoused a kind of pan-German nationalist vision that, that saw East Germans as brothers and sisters. Whereas East Germany's GDR was really a, you know, it was a communist regime that was rooted in a distinctly East German nationalist vision um, as separate from and really, as I would argue, better from the West. Now, when reunification occurred, um, you know, it was really uh, almost unilaterally led by the West. And so. East Germany, you know, reunification happened by essentially absorbing the East German lander into the existing West German constitution. And so for many East Germans, this was a critical juncture that disrupted their national stories. And so, you know, they still identified and saw themselves as East Germans because that's how they were socialized. But all of a sudden they found themselves now minorities under a state that explicitly condemned a separate East German identity. And so Eastern national stories began to focus on experiences of state exclusion, discrimination, um, and started to really seed a belief of a fractured nation-state relationship, uh, framing the unified German state as belonging to the other German nation. And so, you know, this manifests in a steady and sizable turnout gap between former East and West Germans in national elections, you know, all the way to today. And, you know, that gap has really defied predictions of convergence that we would that we would expect from a full generation turnover now since reunification. You know, all that we know from political socialization should say that gap should narrow over time. But when you graph this out, that gap has really held steady um, across across all this time. 
And in survey analyses, I'm able to actually trace that gap, uh, that turnout gap to a parallel civic duty to vote gap between the East and West that has also persisted quite stably since reunification and has actually widened a bit over time. And so, you know, it's it's really no surprise. You know, you might say, well, turnout gap of a you know a couple percentage points, not that big of a deal, is it? Well, Maybe, um, but it's really no surprise that then with Germany's most recent migration challenge and, you know, calls for civic duty to support the state and its integration efforts that we see much higher rates of anti-immigrant crime and violence in the Eastern Bloc. Um, and, you know, the East is sort of the, the site for, um, the, you know, the strongest site of support for the extremist parties like AFD. And so, you know, it begins with things like percentage gaps and in, in turnout, but but I think you know that's really the tip of the iceberg of the of the kinds of um, political ailments that we begin to see when there is this very stark civic duty gap within a within a democracy. Moving back to South Korea and Taiwan, uh, the last part of your book talks about some of the emerging challenges that these two East Asian democracies are facing. And I found that part pretty interesting. Um, To start, both South Korea and Taiwan have very low birth rates. um, And I'm curious how that interacts with your theory. And if senses of national identity and civic duty are strong enough somewhere in South Korea to get people to donate gold uh, during the IMF crisis, might something like an appeal to nationalism be a viable strategy for increasing the birth rate? So the the short version of my answer is that it's complicated. Um, so here goes the long version, right? So South Korea actually, I think, faces two big sociodemographic challenges. And these aren't unique to South Korea per se, but I'll kind of focus on South Korea for this for this question. Um, you know, one is what you mentioned, the uh, declining fertility rate, which is going to lead to an inevitably growing dependence on immigration um, in what is still one of the most ethnically homogenous societies in the world today. The second one that's happening at the same time is ever widening income inequality. Now, the reason why these two developments are are really important is that both of them have strong potential to actually disrupt um, and fracture the strong nation-state linkage that South Korean national stories have so far portrayed. And in fact, I would argue that we're already starting to see the cracks, where there are segments of the citizenry that actually are starting to doubt or no longer see the state as the true representative of, of my vision of the Korean nation. So one example is, I think, the backlash to the Yemeni refugees that we saw in a, a, a couple of years ago in Tejudo. And I think this was really a canary in the coal mine. Um, you know, a lot of the mass media painted this as, you know, South Korea's first big anti-refugee protest. But um, if you actually look at the signage um, of the protesters during the time, it really wasn't an anti-refugee protest. It was an anti-state protest. So, you know, the protesters were demanding that the state first take care of its own national people before then extending support to national others like the Yemeni refugees who just kind of happened to arrive and and gave um, the catalyst for this kind of movement. Um, So we see here, you know, claims to nation beginning to manifest in in kind of illiberal, you know, anti-democratic forms of civic duty. 
right? And this, I think, foreshadows the kinds of civic challenges that, that are going to come with more immigration in South Korea. You know, the second part of the income inequality is that it's hitting the younger, younger generation the hardest. Uh, but that generation has already lived through two, what I see as two kind of tremendous critical junctures. First was the Sewol Ferry incident, um, and it's that exact same generation that years later just most recently lived through the Itaewon incident. They were the primary age group for the casualties of that crowd crush. And these kinds of, you know, formative, defining political memories, kind of like the one that I started with for myself, um, they really have the potential to, to fracture beliefs about nation-state linkage and begin to seed, you know, flavors of national stories that contrast with the kinds that motivated the IMF gold drive sacrifices, you know, stories that paint the state not as an object of, you know, mutual support and obligation, but actually as a betrayer of, of the best interests of, of the younger generation of the nation. And so, you know, these, these kinds of um, beliefs lead to freight, you know, catchphrases like hell chose on, which maybe you've heard about, um, and growing feelings that this nation, right, the nation as defined and represented by the older generation of Koreans is no longer my nation. And this can lead to serious civic duty deficits in the very young generation that needs to actually bear the costs for inequality and welfare problems that are going to come with declining fertility. And so, you know, to go back to your question about, well, will national appeals work to boost the birth rate? Um those kinds of appeals won't work if beliefs about nation-state linkage are already tenuous, right? That's exactly what we see in the Taiwan experiment. Um, so there needs to be a, a conscious strengthening of that those beliefs first uh, through conscious policymaking. So, you know, to boost birth rate, the state really needs to, I think, signal that it holds the best interests of the would-be mothers of the nation. And, you know, the way that they're doing it right now with kind of one-time cash incentives and, you know, subsidizing childcare is, is really not the long-term solution. It's, it's, you know, it's generous maternal leave policies, you know, educational reform to, you know, bring down the costs of, of raising the child for the rest of their lives, um, housing costs, you know, dealing with those, uh, the mess that, that we're in right now, such that families, young families can actually afford to buy homes and then start about, you know, starting a, a family. Those are the kinds of policies that I think, you know, will take a little longer, but will actually help to, to actually boost birth rate by, by restoring this broken linkage among the young generation. Well, it's appropriate you bring up generational differences, and I want to apply this to the Taiwan case where you gathered most of your data in 2013, and a lot has changed in Taiwan since then. There's the Sunflower Movement, which was a youth-led protest movement in 2014. Uh, you have the election of Tsai Ing-wen in 2016. You have a relatively successful COVID response, and so on and so forth. So if you were to go back again today and do your research in Taiwan, what might you do differently and what parts of your theory might you want to stress test and in you know what kind of ways so you know yeah 
I collected most of these data in 2013, and and you know that's the heyday of Mindjo and sort of the return of KMT dominance and Chen Shui-bian. So it was a particular moment in Taiwan's nationalist history, right? And as you said, so much has changed since then, and Taiwan in particular is a fast-moving target with the with this kind of um, evolution of these types of beliefs, and so. Um, I don't think that I would actually do anything differently, but I think my prediction would actually be different if I were to go into the field today versus in 2013. And I think, uh, you know, a real like window of opportunity is opening for Taiwan. So, you know, as you said, the DPP's kind of return to power uh, in in a critical phase for Taiwan with COVID, you know, going into the demo- similar demographic challenges as South Korea is, and then the heating up of relationships with China. Um, I think all, all of those things are a potential turning point and a real opportunity to kind of rebrand the national identity of the state and, and finally repair the long fractured beliefs of nation state linkage that have that have been pervasive uh, on the island. And so Tsai Ing-wen has tried to do this. Uh, so, you know, in a recent foreign affairs piece, she's, you know, explicitly said this, you know, trying to reframe the DPP's nationalist vision, uh, not as one that's based on, you know, ethnic difference from China, uh, but really one that's based on claim to democracy. Um, and, you know, I want to be clear, she's not the first Taiwanese leader to try. I mean, we go back to Yi Deng-hui, who was really the first one to try to espouse this kind of civic version of national identity for Taiwan. Um, but I think two factors make Tsai Ing-wen's efforts likely to resonate. Uh, one is geopolitical. So, you know, China being becoming more increasingly aggressive and moving towards, you know, more kinetic options. Um, against Taiwan, I think you know, it really pits China as a shared threat for everyone on the island, um, kind of inadvertently giving um, uh, Taiwan the, the practical need to actually unify uh, the divided, fractured nationalist visions between the left and right. Um, but also, and this is what you were mentioning about the Sunflower Movement, generationally, the born independent generation that sees democracy as a integral part of what it means to be Taiwanese, uh, that generation is now gaining more uh, electoral clout. And I think, you know, that that shift in, in the electoral makeup is really going to help this sort of, you know, uh, reframing of Taiwanese national identity in a way that it actually links it up strongly with the with the democratic state um, to to actually resonate. But at the same time, I, I really want to emphasize that national stories are not just rhetoric; um, that they are, you know, they are based on real lived experiences of the national people under that state in a, in a particular uh, moment in time, and so policy follow through matters. I mean, the DPP just, you know, um, you know, saw the midterm uh, uh, election results, and they were not what they had hoped for. And so I think there's, there's still a lot of work to do to actually live up to this message. Um, So it still remains to be seen whether Taiwan can, you know, can really um, take advantage of this critical juncture. Um, to to heal that that broken nation state linkage, um, but if there's I think one takeaway from the book, it's that you know civic duty is something that can be lost, but also regrown and actively fostered. So I'm hopeful. 
Well, on uh, the next question that I have is is more of a two-parter here. Um, you know, the, you have a focus on military service as a signifier of civic duty in both the South Korean and Taiwan examples. And you know, for Korea, do you feel that there's negative externalities that come from this deep sense of military obligation where you know, people who don't actually need to serve from overseas are still motivated to serve? And on the Taiwan example, you know, as we were referencing in a previous question, how do these fragmented national stories affect its ability to grapple with an increasingly aggressive China? Those are are great questions. Um, I think in South Korea, national stories have predominantly focused on the role of national men, right? The, The military example is something, you know, ask any Korean man and they'll tell you this like it's literally like a national idiom at this point, you know, you don't, you're not a real Korean man until you serve in the military. But, you know, speaking about negative externalities of that, I mean, South Korea is entering a phase now where the role of national women and especially mothers, both native Korean mothers and migrant mothers um, will be a key part of the state's continued resilience and stability. And so, you know, it's a case where um, the national stories and, and sort of the gendered aspect of that, which I don't really fully explore in the book, but I'm realizing as we as we talk more about the fertility crisis is actually a big deal. Um, it needs a deep reframing of kind of the gendered aspect of, of the national stories in South Korea. Um, you know, for Taiwan, in terms of the military, um, I think Taiwan's struggle with ABF, and it's it's been over a decade since the government has been trying to do this transition. And, you know, every year it falls below the recruitment level and then it adjusts the recruitment level, right, to to keep this going. But it's it's been a struggle. And I think, uh, you know, I think that shows a fundamental kind of misunderstanding from the state's perspective of what the motivation gap is. Because the state has been, you know, pouring a lot of resources into this to, you know, give more benefits and incentives for for Taiwanese youth to sign up for ABF and take a professional military career seriously. But what I find through these interviews is that it's it's not about the benefits. It's about, you know, linking feelings of national duty uh, to the state. And so, you know, there's a lot of focus within Taiwan about, you know, military reform and and how they would um, sort of, uh, you know, technify the military um, in order to counter a potential um, uh, military aggression from China. Um, And I think I think those discussions are obviously very important. But I think there's also an equally urgent need for the partisan factions to really unite behind a new and singular national vision for Taiwan. And yes, I know, you know, between the green and blue camps, there's been more gravitation towards the status quo. But I mean, that's hardly a inspiring national vision, right? I mean, it shows what Taiwan as a nation stands against, but it doesn't really show what Taiwan as a nation stands for. And so I think, you know, party and sort of cultural entrepreneurs need to really, really focus on doing the imaginative work of finding a common, you know, finding the next sort of common foundation that can really unite state and nation in Taiwan. And I would, I would, you know, I would actually argue that establishing that first, right, strengthening those beliefs first is actually a necessary ingredient to then enacting successful military reforms. 
Well, taking a step back uh, to a more general standpoint, obviously, wrap up here, I feel like narratives of civic duty argues pretty convincingly for the existence of what I would call good nationalism, uh, and, and that's nationalism that motivates civic duty. But how does a country actually cultivate this type of nationalism, and then how do you prevent it from turning into bad nationalism? Yeah, I mean, you know, quick note on that. I mean, the good nationalism looks good because of the, you know, civic duty that it produces, right? Um, and, you know, the, the crux of the argument is is that, you know, nationalisms themselves are not good or bad. It's really the relationships between those nationalisms and the states in which they live that, that turns them good or bad uh, by the effects that they produce. And so, you know, how do states kind of foster a um, mutually obligation-based uh, uh, relationship with the national people that live in that state? Well, you know, the state is a key protagonist in these national stories. So the state's actions, um, its partisan polarization and the axis of that, um, the state's policy choices, especially when it targets or marginalizes specific groups, um, as well as leadership rhetoric. Um, these are all kind of key uh, moments that provide that raw content for national stories. You know, and and in turn, like these these very deliberate conscious actions by the state, they they end up shaping popularized beliefs about the moral linkage between the national people who belongs in that nation, uh, right? And and what that relationship is to the state. Do they see the state as a champion and a defender of people like me, right? Uh, in which case, those national people come to see the state as an object of duty. Um, Whereas when the state is portrayed as sort of this oppressor or betrayer of a particular group, um, that group is more likely to see that state as an object of doubt. And so, you know, the the state actually, there's so much more that democratic states can do to kind of self-cultivate their civic reservoirs and foundations than purely cultural theories that say, you know, if you have a Confucian-based nationalism, if you have a Christianity-based nationalism, it's going to turn out a certain way that those kinds of theories would actually suggest. There's a lot more agency, um, but also, I think, a lot more responsibility on the part of democratic governments to be very conscious about when they make policy decisions, you know, who they're including, who they're excluding, how they are framing those different policy rollouts, um, you know, in, in, in terms of rhetoric, um, how are they defining the boundaries of the nation? And do those accord with, um, you know, the groups that hold leadership positions in the state, that all of these kinds of factors, um, you know, politics, national identity politics matter in shaping the strength of civic duty. Well, thank you very much, Aram. This was an enlightening conversation. Really enjoyed diving into all these topics with you. Uh, listeners, if you want to learn more about what we discussed in this episode, look out for Aram Her's book, Narratives of Civic Duty. Aram, thanks again for coming on the New Books Network. Thank you so much.